0: Hi, this is Tamsin Granger, and this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, August twenty third, two thousand twenty, and once again we have with us today this Zeke Abuhoff. Zebo.
1: Hello, Our boy.
0: All the way from California. Venice, California. Yeah,
1: Venice, California, very exotic locale. Here we call it Venezia. <laughs> Venezia. <laughs> well, you should. It's a lovely exotic place.
0: And uh, I think we've discussed before that the air is still clear. Yeah. No fire. Uh, from...
2: Clear enough. Clear enough to get by. Uh, I'm you know, not trying to spend tons of time outdoors.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the way you normally approach it anyways. <laughs> no difference yeah. there. Uh, good. Great. All right. So we have a, a lot to cover and we're going to start with an article that Zeke brought to our attention. Our roving reporter out there on the West Coast. Strangely, an article about New York called "New York City is Dead Forever," which appeared in the forever New- <laughs> so dead
2: forever in the New York Post. So, an article yeah, by we got to get
1: the name out there. James Altucher is a fellow who was yeah. involved in comedy clubs, a lot of things in New York, and he. Um, it's a hedge, fund, hedge fund guy. He has, yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's he's a Renaissance. He's a polymath, but and he uh, self-published this article, and now. It's been republished in the New York Post, which I think increases its pedigree some eight percent or something. But okay, now, of
2: course, brought my attention to it as a lifelong New York Post aficionado.
1: <laughs> I read it once in a while. What a
2: publication! Now, the point is, his uh, argument
1: is that New York City is dead forever because it's dead now because all the restaurants are closing, because the shows are closed, because there's nobody around, and uh, he doesn't think the city's going to regain its footing. Basically. Yes. And why not? Because it's too big a blow. Uh, but it's
0: regained its footing before. Uh, yes, we had 9-11. Well, we had 2008, 2009. What does he say about yeah, that? The article to me says many, this many This time
2: trends. is different. Yeah, this
0: time Why is different. this time different?
1: The one thing that stuck out to me that resonated. With what me,
0: time? Why is this time different?
1: Yeah, I'm getting to it. There are many reasons. But the one reason that stuck out for me Was The the question is whether New York needs to be the hub, whether the world needs New York as the hub of business and finance, et cetera, whether all the people who go to those restaurants and go to the theater and patronize all those businesses in New York have to be in New York any longer. Uh, Or alternatively, uh, will there not be a return to New York because it's easy enough uh, and more convenient and less expensive for people to work from home and not have to uh, get together every day? via commuter train in New York City. Uh, That, to me, is the economic central question. And what's interesting about that uh, is it's funny, because this discussion always is a pandemic discussion. It's come up before. In fact, people have responded to Al already. They're disagreeing with him in the Post. uh, They're disagreeing with him in the New York Times. uh, And uh, it's not a pandemic issue. And the reason that is is because what's bringing the issue up is not – the pandemic as a destructive force, but the notion of the opportunity that potentially lies in technology. In other words, once the pandemic is gone, there's nothing to stop people from returning to New York absent the possibility that people say, you know, technology is going to allow us the opportunity not to have to go to New York, to be able to work from home. It's a positive thing. And that positive thing may be the thing that undermines New York, at least the way we've seen it before. At least that's the way I read the article. What do you think, Zeke?
0: Is it, well, what did you just say, Daniel? Do what you mean, think it's going to come back or not?
1: No, I, I'm not, I, I don't have a conclusion to whether it comes back or not. My main point is if it doesn't come back, it's because people find that they prefer not to be there, which is a different thing than a destructive force like what, what happened in 2008 and what happened uh, in 9-11. It's because, has the pandemic opened up people's eyes to see that, in fact, they don't have to go to New York? And if they don't have to go to New York, you won't have New York as it once was. And all these businesses I described a moment ago and all those jobs will be gone. Uh, and uh, that's interesting. It's possible. Uh, I, do I think that's going to happen? You know, I think the answer is whether uh, people are going to be comfortable working from home or they feel it's, it's much more productive uh, and much preferable to be in those big office
0: buildings. What uh-huh. do you think, Zeke?
2: I think this report of New York's demise is greatly exaggerated. I think uh, this particular author is hung up on what seems to be dead about New York to him. And it's hard to separate that from the more substantive large trends, some of which uh, Dad is referring to here. So this guy says, like, you know, all three of my favorite restaurants have closed. Uh, So, you know, to him, that's an apocalypse. But. To the city at large, that may not actually indicate things have really collapsed. Also, from this guy's perspective, as someone who has been in New York for some decades, uh, he's saying, "Oh, this isn't like the '70s and '80s when the you know city could bounce back from having a much higher crime rate. This is you know today when uh, you know it's it's much harder to rebuild things. We just want you know established institutions to operate correctly, which is another way of saying." He was a young man who had recently moved to New York in that era, so it seemed like the world was full of possibility and New York could bounce back, and now he's uh, an older person just trying to take care of his family, and he's more uh, scared by the idea of things changing quite a bit. But there's this big open question of what kind of change it will be. Part of the change is people working from home, Um, and part of that, you know, even the, the, the Pandemic does affect it because even if people could have worked from home before, in many cases, they didn't. And this has been kind of a big kick in the butt uh, to do that. Also, the pandemic has re- it truly has messed with uh, the restaurant business and the theater business. And if that coincides with a lot of people starting to work from home, uh, you know, a lot of those businesses won't won't bounce back. One thing that some of the, you know, overly optimistic V-shaped recovery people don't Acknowledge is that of all these businesses that are temporarily closed, a certain number will be permanently closed. And that's probably a higher number than what we're comfortable with. So there is going to be economic damage, but the question is how much of this is just uh, bad destruction and how much is creative destruction? My hope for the city is that there are opportunities in this destruction, uh, that, you know, if really rents and and real estate prices go down if they actually go down then maybe people who are not super wealthy could potentially live there and this would actually be solving a long-running problem for new york which is the extent to which it has become a playground for the super rich oh, it around. has become less affordable in the recent decades so if suddenly everything got cheaper if suddenly a bunch of the people moved out freeing up some housing availability if there were new opportunities to start businesses, then you know that really sounds like a, a lot of upside to me. So you're saying, and I can't would guarantee that that'll all happen. No. People will move yeah.
0: back to the offices and work remote. I
2: don't.
0: Well, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> we'll move back to the apartments, but won't go to the offices. The, no well, no maybe not necessarily back. those people yeah they those it could back. Back. be that well, you know, he's saying York, there'll be opportunities for no, people to saying, do that who couldn't he, before i think
1: he is saying that rents will go down because there will be less demand for i think apartments you can't have it both ways no he's not he's not no i think ways. here's here's
2: what i'm saying this is the, the optimistic view of what could happen is that it could be that before the pandemic so much of manhattan for example was luxury apartments occupied by people who did work, you know, did knowledge work in these huge like offices uh, throughout the island, and they they were so well paid that they drove up prices for everything, and that then after the pandemic, these people have all relocated to other right. places, uh, allowing a void no, to open I up for other people, maybe be. people who are doing more middle class work, maybe you know people to start new restaurants, maybe people to start new small businesses. And, you know, for my money, that's the best stuff that New York has going for it, the small businesses, not the giant offices, well, not the fact that it's a corporate headquarters for this, you know, I, multinational I, I think might corporation well be, or that it one. It could
1: land that way, Zeke, we'll have to see. But I think the author here, Altersher, would say that's not New York. It, 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 he'd say this is Pittsburgh. And uh, that's, that's, in his mind, is the destruction of the New York, you know, in his mind, his, his vision of All the right.
0: world. All well, right, well we'll just, well, we'll just have to see, but... Uh... Yeah, but I think that the, the key
1: is, and I think we've both been saying this, it's disruptive technology as much as anything that's at the heart of this. Yeah. You know, the pandemic, as, as Zeke put it, sort of was a kick in the butt, I think was Zeke's phrase, for so, using the technology. But it's this technology, which is what uh, gilds the path right. to a to change. And so that took us to another article here called uh, An AI Breaks the Writing Barrier, And uh, the idea about artificial intelligence actually doing writing. And when I showed this to Tamsin, Tamsin's reaction was... Horror. Horror. (laughs) That's awful. And which is, again, right in line with the notion of so-called disruptive technology. But, Zeke, you are the technologist here. Tell us what's going on.
2: So, this article is in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, You know, the New York Post's better educated cousin. (laughs) And... In this article, we talk about GPT-3. Now, some of you may may be saying, who needs GPT-3? I was happy with (laughs) GPT-2. But uh, really, GPT-3 is pretty impressive. It's this AI program, right? It's this artificial intelligence program that has been developed to take in a ton of data about generally human language, just a lot of information it finds on the internet, and to have a sort of Uh, widely applicable sort of intelligence about what to do with new data. And this is remarkable because as artificial intelligence has advanced, it's uh, kind of moving towards this goal of general intelligence, what we think of as the ability to problem solve in a wide range of settings, the idea to encounter totally new data and make new conclusions about it and new reactions to it. Uh, whereas like the, the more primitive stuff is saying, okay, here's a program that knows everything about a very narrow data set. It knows everything about this one subject and what to do uh, in reaction to a very certain predefined range of situations. So GPT-3 is exciting to people as something more general. You You know, without feeding it a ton more data, you can just set it up to do things like say, I'm going to ask it a question. I type in like a sentence that asks it a question and it just brings me right to the Wikipedia article that uh, is correct for that. So this is like uh, the a kind of more substantive version of, that. like that application is a more substantive version of what we see in Google or what we saw in the old days with beloved Ask Jeeves. Uh, ask Jeeves under the hood was just, you know, gonna look for the keywords in your sentence and try to match those in a pretty crude way uh, with what was in its database of websites, whereas GPT three is going has this uh, you know more elaborate system of how it understands right. language. In other so words, it writes you a are, whole
0: an answer to your question. Well, it can write you. Okay? Yeah,
2: well, it, it can write you an answer. That's there are various applications of it. Okay, People, so all you need this, to you know, do open is uh,
0: invest in a little GPT three before your next mm-hmm. exam. Yeah. Well, and uh, and you've got it made. Well, it, look, I think, <laughs> look, as Zeke well explained it, the notion that it
1: has a more flexible intellect than your average computer or Ask Jeeves little bot approach is pretty impressive and pretty amazing. And as the article points out, and you talk about writing, Timson, it, it's actually equipped to do a first draft of things for you. And I
0: know, but it's going to do a first, my point is it's going to do a first well, draft for my students. Well, that, that's Your students are a
1: small piece of the puzzle, but you're right. You're right. The question is is it going No
0: to, one will have any need to do their own writing students. anymore.
1: For, but this is uh, there are a lot of people who take, we, there are
0: people who What's going to you? happen Tamsin, to the people who Tamsin. write for Tamsin. this podcast? No, that's <laughs> the point. That's the point. Forget your students.
1: <laughs> what's much more consequential is there are a lot of jobs that are hands-on writing jobs, writing and explaining jobs. And GPT is going to crank this stuff out. It's probably going to not be the finished product at the same level of what a human being is going to do. But they're saying it's going to be pretty reasonably close. That's so at least it's going to be a serviceable first draft and require less in the way of human involvement than what writing
2: was before.
0: I'm not excited. I'm yeah, not one, remotely. One way to interested. think about
2: this. One way to think about this is that you know we've gotten computers to the point where they can write their own bad essays. Yeah. Um, we're not at the point where they can write their own good essays. Yeah. But they really can write their own like pretty coherent-seeming bad stuff. In fact, actually, one commentator on Twitter compared GPT-3 to a smart student who hadn't done the reading. They said <laughs> uh, it, can, it will say some facts that it's actually learned. Yeah. It will say some things that are perhaps not entirely true, but that it's surmising from what it yeah. knows, and it will just lie with complete confidence. <laughs> and the whole thing taken together seems like a very confident, clear answer. So, uh, so one of the other familiar. applications, yeah. yeah, one of the other applications that uh, people have made is um, making a GPT three uh, app that can speak from the perspective of famous people. So. Uh, one example uh, that I read elsewhere was, uh, you say, "Okay, GPT-3, pretend to be Steve Jobs." Now I'm talking to Steve Jobs. You know, tell me about your work. Tell me about Apple computers, and it, you know, gives you answers as if, you know, as if it were Steve Jobs. But also, will, if you say to it, "Where are you right now?" It will say, "Oh, well, I'm at Apple headquarters in Cupertino, California." And Steve Jobs is not exactly at <laughs> Apple headquarters, I, I, yeah, I got right? It. So there are, there are all sorts of weird, surprising, yeah. sometimes subtle ways nice, in which witches. what it knows, well, what it but feels but confident here's the deal, telling though. you is not entirely true. If they
0: can do that, if they can do Steve Jobs, they yeah. can do Tamsin and Dan. No, no, no. But, but Steve, There's going to be Steve no... It's going to be, as Zeke said... The robots are coming no, for they your can't, podcast they can't. Siri and Alexa read no the No one's going to replicate
1: this, And although the bigger question is whether they would want to. But... but the idea of glitches comes up in the next technology bit, which is transparent. The fear of glitches. Tran- well, yes, but that's part of technology. Transparent toilets in Tokyo, in which what they have developed are toilets which are public, public restrooms. You can look through a glass panel. You can say, "Oh, that's a pretty clean, well lit toilet. That looks good to me. I'm in." You walk in, you close the door, and it becomes opaque because of technology, or so you hope. And apparently, Zeke, not everyone's accepting this. I know you've been to Tokyo recently, but they didn't have those when you were there, I assume.
2: No, I went last year. Um, I did see, though, some of what else they talked about in this article, which is um, some of the existing, uh, the older and not entirely great quality public restrooms in Tokyo. I should note that Tokyo is a remarkably clean place place, given its uh, tremendous population. Uh, and a lot of urban spaces in Japan look clean in a way that makes all of America look dirty. But some of those public toilets are kind of ignored. They're not a, necessarily a great focus. Uh, in the article here, they note that there are a bunch of public restrooms that simply don't have hand soap in Japan. Uh, for whatever reason, that I bet is they have it not now. Been a priority so far. <laughs> yeah, well, all of a sudden people are even more offended about that than they were before. Yeah. Um, So, you know, there was this effort to build new public restrooms. There were supposed to be the Olympics this year. Uh, That got pushed back, but they still wanted to provide a very modern and exciting sort of public utility for the folks visiting from abroad. Uh, What they came up with was a public restroom that is transparent. You can walk up to it and see the toilet inside while you're standing outside. And this would be entirely unacceptable except they have that special kind of glass where when you send an electric current through it it switches from transparent to opaque so someone can walk in they shut the door at the moment the door shuts and locks uh the glass changes and now all you can see is something just very blurred
0: if you're inside if you're inside
1: can you you see out can you tell they don't tell you in the article
2: no i I
0: I don't
1: i don't think you
2: can i think it's i think it's (laughs) Isn't it? Well, Well, are you unnerved currently when you use a public restroom and you can't see out of it? No, you know it's okay.
0: I mean, you're reassured
2: by how opaque it seems. It's all
0: bad. It's all bad. Because frankly you don't know if it's one-way <laughs> it's glass so genius, and except, you can't see out but people can it's, see in it's just a lack I mean, of, it's but just, if the technology
1: is working it works. Right. so it's just a lack of complete faith in technology that's that's telling people that's causing people not to really yeah embrace because it.
0: technology never lets us down Well,
1: i'm not taking a position on it okay. i'm just saying that that's right. the other side all, all right. right well let's, you know, I, think I'm this glad... is, I
2: think this is actually not especially sophisticated fragile technology well, but this I mainly I have this opinion because I've seen it work in an episode of Grand Design. Oh really? Oh you have? <laughs> uh, yes. Oh my there was God. uh well, that is, there was a, an episode of that deal. of that program where someone was making their brand new uh dream house and because part of uh, because it was so much of it was underground, they had their roof light was actually on street level for everyone else. So, you know, out of concern that passersby might be able to spy on them having dinner at any moment. Oh, I moment, get it. Yeah. They had uh, that special glass installed, cool. and it seemed to work very well for them. They okay. show it in the in the show, and uh, it looks good. It looks solid. And it's as simple as just, you know, once you get the glass, you're just running current yeah, through it. Just, so if you trust a light bulb, I feel like you should be able to trust but this the special glass. the light bulbs
1: go out. There's stakes or less if, if you're having a stake. If there's a power outage, <laughs> right, power outage. those poor people, there you are. they can't do a thing. Until right. we get to the art report, you got to get to the art report.
0: Um.
1: Yeah, so... Museum
0: update, ding ding ding. Well, this is a big museum update because uh, it, it was supposed to be this uh, this year, 2020, the 500th anniversary of uh, the death of Raphael, the great Italian master who died when he was 37. In uh, I'm going to say 1520, uh, just off the top of my head because I'm married to a an mathlete and. Um, <laughs> I was thinking 1520. Uh, Okay. Um, anyway, uh, now you got me all confused. Yeah, Raphael. Paper. Raphael. Yeah. Um, so uh, this is a great article by David Laskin, and uh, it was in the Sunday New York Times, and it just kind of goes through, walks through all the fabulous uh, things we could be seeing. If we could go to these museums. Now, some of the museums, you know, the anniversary started in April. The exhibitions were starting then and they had to close down because Italy was in, uh, you know, such a crisis. Uh, But some of them are open now, uh, including places like the Vatican, where the famous uh, Raphael frescoes are. And uh, the thing is, no, not many people are going to see them. Uh, compared to what is usually expected so if you can see these things in Italy it's a it's a fantastic moment because you're having it all to yourself it's good for the Italians I mean they meant the Italians say they're seeing it Um, for the first time but anyway it's this is a good article and I'll try to put a link to this uh, on our site because uh, what Laskin does is in the digital version of this he has links to all these different uh, ways to see some of these works. And not all of them are links to the museums. He's got links to videos that, uh, or, you know, virtual tours of uh, these different places. So uh, that's uh, kind of fantastic. It's another situation where, uh, you know, technology has improved The product, okay. And uh, he does uh, recommend going to Urbino, uh, which is where, you know, Raphael was born. Of course. (laughs) Of course. course. Urbino. And uh, uh, there's a wonderful palace there um, built by the humanist and warlord Federico de Montefeltro, my favorite
2: cantatiore. Um, Humanist and warlord. Humanist and warlord. Yes, that's warlord? the way. Laskin yeah. right? puts it. It seems we like, like an Laskin. atypical we like uh, pair of qualities. Of yes. Yes.
0: yes, we
1: we we should say we know David. We knew David Laskin a long time ago when he was his writing career was beginning with the Gentleman's Guide to uh, Cocktails for Esquire Magazine. He
0: wrote that. Uh, anyway, so uh not only humanist were know,
1: warlords, some some not. Yeah.
0: You know, we're sad that uh, Raphael is gone, but uh, hopefully these uh, exhibitions uh, remind us of just how great he is. You know, part of the big three, right? Michelangelo, Leonardo, and Raphael. And uh, Raphael is interesting in a lot of ways. You think of his art, but you know what he was? He was a great businessman. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. He ran a fantastic workshop uh okay and uh so this is all kind of fascinating okay. to me and i can see you yawning no no, no. here's my question you sit there he was also a fun guy michelangelo not a fun guy yeah, okay. all right leonardo interesting guy yeah. you know maybe fun i don't okay. Raphael everybody loved Answer. here's him. my question okay if the big three
1: are Raphael. Michelangelo, Leonardo, I know that those are the names of three of the Ninja Turtles. The fourth Ninja Turtle was Donatello, if I recall correctly. Right. But he does not belong so the big. big Three. No? No,
0: he's not in the Big Three. Okay. He's, a, he's earlier. All he's right. pretty big. You know, he's good. He was he, he was very important. On the cusp. We love his his sculpture, yes. but he's, he's not the Big Three. Okay. All right. So we have three public service announcements. The first has to... wonder been. why they felt they had to have four Ninja okay.
1: Turtles. Zeke, do you know? It's a nice, even <laughs> okay. number. Yeah. doesn't know. Um, All right.
2: I mean I think it's a I think it was a question of balancing out the personalities yeah, cool. there. You know, I think there's a nice dynamic. It's not it a
0: tall good. In general, people avoid even numbers. I mean okay. three is good, two is bad, four is bad. It was a
1: union thing probably. The uh, three public service. Numbers. The first has, you, you, has you're to stepping do, on my the first has to do with the Hungarian pastry shop. A place Tams and I used to go. Go ahead, Tamson. What is this? Hungarian pastry shop. What about it? It's still around. They had an article about it just the other day in the New York Times. It's
0: unbelievable that it's still there. We used yeah. to go there in, uh, God knows, in the 70s. Let's call it the 70s. In the 70s, late 70s. Yeah. Okay. So that just, we just bring it up briefly because um, it's part of a series that the Times is doing, kind of reminiscing on various places that are still around. So older people like us, we love that kind of What's thing. So
1: 116th Street? Or
0: 111th in Amsterdam. Oh, sorry, sorry. Okay. Yeah. And not too far from V&T's Pizza, oh, great wow, pizza that's place. A, that's an article for uh, the future, yeah. yes. Um, and uh, it's been there for a long, long time. The current owners, the father of the current owner, yeah, who is Philip Benoris, yeah, used to his work. father bought it in yes. the 70s from the original Hungarians, mm. okay? And um, guess where his dad worked as a busboy? Symposium. Symposium, you read yeah. the article. Yes. Um, <laughs> the Greek restaurant on 120th Street? Yeah, in the same area yeah. that we went to at the same time. Um, next to the Hungarian pastry shop yeah. was a Hungarian restaurant, yeah. the Green Tree. Yeah. Do you remember their stuffed roast chicken? See, I remember a place called Serda, which had stuffed roast chicken. No. I think that was Sharda, Sharda, and that was on the east side. Yes, I know. We went there after Green Tree closed. Oh, okay. And we were trying to recreate the I same see. culinary I'm sure experience. Oh, best Although Sharda was a little bit fancier, it and was. then that closed too. It was a to So, anyway, yeah. um, you know, uh, uh, apparently people write books at the Hungarian pastry oh, shop. Oh, yeah, sure. We know that. You don't you know, know why, Zeke? No Wi-Fi. No Wi-Fi. They let you sit there forever, but there's so, no Wi-Fi. So you so can why, easily write. Sit there? Oh,
1: that has to be a reason not to sit there forever. So they kind of cause people to No, people do sit there forever, well, but it, they can't it, do internet more stuff. More people will do it. If you, Only certain people sit there you forever. You know, they had the movie we saw last night. They had kind of an off-color Hungarian joke. No, no, no. Let's just Let's not on. tell that. Okay. The ne- next public service announcement has to do with roundabouts. This is a family show. Okay. Roundabouts. Um and the, the article in the New York Times about roundabouts, circular logic, roundabouts get easier. And I'm saying to myself, oh, good, I'm interested in this because I'm always kind of... You mean like traffic perplexed. roundabouts? Yeah, traffic Car roundabouts. Car
0: roundabouts?
1: Roundabouts versus traffic circles. Okay. Look, I'm not going to talk about the article because the article communicates no information whatsoever. Um, it's, it, it's just disappointing. But uh, there was... So I, we talked to Granger about this, uh, Gr- Zeke's older brother. Mm-hmm. And Granger turns out to be the world's leading expert on roundabouts. He says, let me explain to you the difference between a roundabout and a traffic circle. I said, what's that? He said, traffic circles, what you see from you know, old-time New Jersey traffic patterns. And what happens is when you get in that circle, you, have, you see yield signs on the interior of the circle such that the driver in the circle is constantly looking over his shoulder because he feels he has to yield. A roundabout, a proper roundabout. Is designed differently in a sense that the yield signs are on the outside of the circle, which means that folks who are approaching the circle yield to folks in the circle. If you're in the circle, you have it right away. And strangely, that makes all the difference. That works. That's a tremendous traffic device. Uh, and we had experienced roundabouts designed just that way in Europe on some of our bicycle trips, Tamsin. In and,
0: Ireland, and, in right. Italy, and when you can, you're in the circle... You have right away.
1: right away. And, and you can navigate that beautifully. So I said the great, how did it you? Works be, beautifully. How did you become an expert on this? And he said, because there's sort of a simulation game called cityscapes in which you often have traffic problems, and the way you design around them is you have roundabouts. And if you design them
0: that way, it works. So there you go. Technology again, making life better. Zeke had a, a great uh, remark about this. Well, roundabouts and Americans. Yes, did you I? did,
2: Zeke. Ah. Okay, you've just reminded me. Well, it's just funny that they, they note in the article that, you know, some people like roundabouts and some don't. Uh, some people, there there's various uh, there are various data points showing that they can be safer or less safe or just as unsafe as regular intersections, uh, kind of depending on who you ask. Um, and what the shape of this data seems to be overall is that in other countries, People have been using these uh, roundabouts for a while. Uh, they seem quite comfortable with them and they seem to work quite well. Uh, in the US, when people are not comfortable with the roundabouts, they don't drive through them as safely. Uh, those roundabouts tend to be, you know, have a worse safety record. Uh, and this seems to be just one of those cases where a problem has already been, been solved elsewhere in the world. The U.S. did not get the memo, and now people in the U.S. say, I don't know if this well, really is it, It's because of the, uh, the, the works
1: history of traffic, traffic circles. They're putting the people. yield signs in the wrong okay. place. All right. And the final public service announcement, moth stems, and it's moth season. Oh, these are public service it's announcements. It's public service, yes.
0: Okay. <laughs> just, uh, is, that, is that what the show <laughs> is Just doing? the last three,
1: Z. That's no, what we've been
0: trying
2: that. to do? Not what you do especially,
0: Nice little article in the um, Sunday Times by Margaret Roach who uh, is a wonderful nature uh, commentator, writer, uh, person. You see her on the uh, NPR a lot. Anyway, uh, she recommends getting out and looking at moths. Not butterflies, moths. Mm. That this is the height uh, of moth season, at least in um, our area. And uh, she wants you to go out and hang up a white sheet. Harry. Your friend Harry used to make this suggestion. Yes, yes. Hang up a white sheet, shine a black light on it, and you will see some amazing uh, creatures. Uh, so uh, that's my public service. All right, you fine. know,
2: If you... Yeah, don't put up a bright light because apparently that's bad for is the insects. Right? Apparently, I don't know if that, yeah, you that ends up killing them light. maybe because yeah. it's too hot. Light pollution um, is destroying. And light pollution is bad for them. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. Those those Apparently these moths, they tend to fly around at night because it's safer oh. for them to, to get around at night that's than during the day. Right. Predators Unless are they're made, more uh, able roundabout to get around during
1: Dangerous. Uh, all right, Zeke. Uh, so here's another example of uh, uh, technology... Uh, but technology being questioned in a harsh way. And that's the orthotropics article, Zeke.
2: I thought th- this mm-hmm. is Zeke's? Yeah. Okay. You can <laughs> sure. jump in, tamsin uh, Dad seems to have pegged <laughs> me as Mr. Technology. <laughs> yeah. Orthotropics. All right. So when he it's just Well, Any sort of it's invention. It's a hard choice.
0: This is about orthodonture. And we've all had ortho. We've all had. A, it turns out it's a racket. Races, right? It's a racket. It's a racket.
1: It's a you know racket. it's unnecessary.
2: Your teeth are fine. It's, Leave them the exactly, way they are. Exactly, they that's correct. My teeth aren't fine. are they? No, there's there's okay. What's the so problem? so we know that teeth aren't fine. A lot of people have trouble with their teeth, and the question is where does this trouble come from? Because the uh, establishment in orthodontics is generally content to say. Look, we don't know why our teeth are messed up. We think it's genetic. Uh, The important thing is that you get braces, you know, Uh, and you usually get them in like middle school or whatever, Uh, but you can also get them later. You get them in middle school because
0: things are all just beginning to go terribly south then anyway. So why not
2: ruin your face totally with braces? You think it's bad to get them in middle school? Try getting them senior year of high school. All right.
1: All right. Now we're touching a raw nerve. (laughs) All right. Go ahead, Zeke so uh, anyway
2: anyway uh you know we've all struggled with uh orthodontics but uh there's an article in the times about a rogue orthodontist out there uh in england uh who seems to be kind of a mad scientist kind of a uh, an eccentric uh english nobleman Uh, they have those (laughs) over there guy lives in a castle um he's he's out of his mind but he uh But he's a very controversial figure because he has these very strange views on orthodontics. And, you know, it's controversial enough. His views are strange enough that his license has been taken away. Uh, This is, you know, not just a fun other option. I'll put that disclaimer up front. Uh, We are not endorsing this guy's practice. But his strange views do provoke interesting questions because he claims that people have crooked teeth. Because of how their faces develop over the course of their childhood, and that the modern world has certain factors that cause your face to develop in a different way than would have happened in other eras. And his the the probably the most compelling bits of evidence that he cites are, you know, things like very old skeletons having great peaks. Skulls, peace.
0: yeah. And yeah. the
2: article the article doesn't necessarily wholeheartedly endorse this, but implies that this is actually an astute observation that with a lot of old skeletons, they just don't seem to have all the crooked teeth that we have they today. Don't. So they somewhere get, around makes it 200 very clear. years ago, things started to The man went bad. to
0: Penn and talked to an anthropologist and looked at the skulls. The teeth of cavemen look great.
2: All right. <laughs> and then. Yeah, a lot of a lot of fine looking. And then we get to
0: like, up. you know. Modern society, industrial society, nineteenth century. Now we begin to have crooked teeth. Now, first of all, we should name the guy. His name is John Mew, right? Right. And he works with his son Mike Mew. Yeah. And uh, but uh, you know, and you're right. He seems pretty eccentric, but it seems, and he has reasons for why he thinks the industrial revolution um, ruined our teeth.
2: Yeah, we he thinks that we don't we don't do enough hard chewing in youth. You know that in the old days, people <laughs> See, used to, to say that, really to work say in the old days. work to ingest food. They had to really muscle that exactly. you know food to bits, and uh, it ended up with these strong, developed uh, jaws. And his you know great example of this is his son Mike. Uh, and the the person writing the article notes like, boy, you know. Mike is a, a triumph of jaw strength. You meet this guy, and you can see the muscles pulsing inside his well, head. Well, uh, he actually the only, the only unfortunate thing. The only unfortunate thing is that he has two other kids who apparently do not have strong jaw <laughs> muscles. He uh, they talk in the article about how he experimented a little bit on his kids. By the way, always a mark of a great scientist <laughs> experimented on his own kids, and uh, you know one of them has kind of a, an average. Jaw, not especially muscular, not especially straight, and the other one seems to have the same orthodontic problems as everyone else. <laughs> so uh, it's not it's not you know so compelling necessarily, but that's that's his basic theory, well, right? And, that, and, I guess, also, holding your holding your tongue up, keeping your mouth right, your closed. That's the other big thing. Provides he wants people a to do. sort
0: of a um, scaffolding for the upper jaw. All right, the what's it called? The maxilla. All right. And so, I mean, a lot of his, a lot of what he says seems to make some good sense. Also, um, he brings in the idea of uh, breathing properly. You know, yeah. we've talked about breathing through your nose before. Now it's so much well, more uh, healthful. It it affects, you know, by breathing through your mouth, yeah. it affects the shape of your jaws Look, and your we, face. We
1: can't resolve whether this guy's a cold nut case or whether there's something to it. I will say that what struck me is that the writer of the article for the Times. Seems convinced. In other words, the writer of the article is skeptical about this fellow all the way through. And his last few paragraphs, he, when, he's, when he gets to take a look at what you call the uh, caveman skulls and looks at the teeth, something clicks for the writer of the article and he says, you know something? This guy might be right, which is, right. Which is weird.
0: But it's an interesting article but and this it's is a bizarre article a, yeah. because uh, Mike new is kind of a... Um,
2: YouTube superstar is that right yes okay um, and yeah so so Mike Mew the younger the younger of these muse, uh has gone out there and promoted these ideas in a very modern way uh, YouTube videos and going through oh, social media and this really has brought you know his uh, you know him and his father's you know legacy of eccentricity into somewhat darker territory because for a lot of people their critique of establish- of the medical establishment runs in line with feelings they already had about not trusting various establishments, medical and otherwise, and really ties into some pretty anti-social movements. And they go and talk in the article about how these guys are a favorite of the incel community, which we don't have to de- delve into, but they're just a really awful, toxic uh, online community. And... It's I to me. It's this is partly an interesting story because it's yet another situation where someone is uh, going against the grain. They're asking questions, and those questions are interesting questions. But then, because they don't actually find purchase in the uh, establishment, they as they keep pursuing those questions, they go off into whack territory, <laughs> uh, quack territory, I should say, and uh, and eventually end up like you know. Probably chartering a a movement doing more harm than good. Just a lot of people saying, well, this sounds right, so I'll pay this man some amount of money for treatments that are totally unproven. And people saying, this sounds right, so I'm going to keep repeating them and attach them to various, you know, racist or misogynistic theories and promote those. It really goes off the rail in this unfortunate way, especially when you're considering, uh, you know, the basic question of why do we have crooked teeth. What are the deeper causes and can they be treated is a valid question that you probably want the orthodontist community to meaningfully address. Well,
0: they probably don't want to because they would be out of a job.
2: <laughs> maybe not. But,
0: uh, so, yeah. you it's know,
2: more money in treatment. Advice to cares. children,
0: chewy food. Chewy food. Chewy food. So you'll have a great All right. Well, here's face. another
1: instance, and maybe it's a sunnier instance of someone who questioned technology. It's an obituary. It's a fellow named Marvin Creamer, who died at the age of 104. And what distinguished him was he sailed around the world without a compass, without any instruments at all. Uh, As the Times puts it, under cloud massed skies, he could divine his location from the color and temperature of the water, the presence of particular birds and insects, And even on one occasion, the song of a squeaky hatch. I'll get back to that in a minute. But his theory was that uh, the ancient mariners, as he describes them, didn't feel uncomfortable. They sailed uh, around uh, territories unknown and they didn't have any instruments. And his theory was if they didn't have any instruments, they were relying on other bits of information. And he could also. So he set sail from Cape May. And he went New Jersey. around the world and came back to Cape May. It took him more than a year to do it. He said the only people who thought he could do it were he and his wife. Uh, they turned out to be right. She didn't go with them. He had a crew otherwise. Uh, she did insist that he take with him a sextant, a clock, a compass, and a radio. They were kept in a sealed locker below deck only to be open in an emergency. And there was never such an emergency. He was able to... Um, divine landmarks on the basis of the presence of an extremely cold north wind of relatively short duration, the change of watercolor from blue to fairly dark, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Things that, uh, I don't even know how these things work. But the best one, the but best Marvin one,
0: did. the best and one is the hatch,
1: did. the hatch, right? On one occasion, the, uh, his uh, boat uh, sat becalmed, bothered and bewildered, until his geographer's ears came to their aid. As the wind started up again, a crew member happened to open a hatch and emitted a loud squeak. That sound told Professor Creamer unequivocally in which direction the boat was facing. Only dry air from the Antarctic, he knew, would have caused the squeak. Moist air uh, would have lubricated the hatch and uh, therefore would have yielded a more congenial noise. And that's how All right, he so he knew a lot was. of stuff. It's okay. kind of crazy. Yeah. And, he, and he went around the world without any instruments. And Pretty he lived to impressive. be
0: like, uh, how, how old was he? 104. All he, right.
1: And he sailed into his 90s. You
0: know, that's kind of uh, a knock against your technology stuff, isn't it?
1: No, not. First of all, it's not my technology stuff. I understand technology has limits. And the orthotropics thing, you have me completely convinced that the, the technology of orthodontics is, 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 is misguided. So I'm um, coming around.
2: But I would I would argue that in some ways this is an endorsement or a or a success story for technology. It's just that he's using the technology of oh, a different I think that's era. Fair. That's fair. You know, this is this is a triumph of the navigational techniques of uh, these like pre-modern societies. Yeah, I think that's and right. v- Very There are you know there is evidence of people sailing incredible distances like across the Pacific True. Ocean and all around the Mediterranean without even an astrolabe. Uh, thousands of yeah. years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah. So in any event, there you go. Uh, so you had uh, some book stuff. Book
0: stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting article about Anne Goldstein, who's the translator of the books by Elena Ferrante, whoever she right. is. No one knows okay. Elena Ferrante is. It's a pseudonym. But that, that's the author of the Neapolitan... Uh, um, books, my my brilliant friend right etc very, very popular. anyway, um, if uh, this article really credits Anne Goldstein with uh, you know um, a great deal of uh, the it popularity the and the success well, of these books based on her translation captured. Okay. And uh, she's an editor at The New Yorker for many 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 years. She's retired now uh, in I think the 80s she and some co-workers decided to take Italian just for fun. Yeah. And uh, they were interested in reading Dante. And uh, they plowed through, they took enough Italian to plow through the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. Um, and uh, she goes on to be uh, this very successful translator. Um, anyway, that's uh, those Ferrante books have a very interesting tone to them Uh, so it you know it's amazing that she um, helped craft that or capture that Uh, anyway there's a new book coming out uh, by Ferrante the lying life of adults and it was supposed to come out in the summer it's now coming out um, September 1 Uh, Ann Goldstein has translated this as well looks interesting i um, have to look for that. Uh, there was also a little, um, kind of a cartoon, would you call it a cartoon, Zeke? Um, of uh, the, entitled that's- Swimming and Reading right. in the New yeah. York Times. And uh, it was just a nice little sort of uh, meditation on loving to swim and loving to read and various uh, mentioned various books about uh, swimming uh, etc and i seized on to one i um decided to read uh what's it called i mean this is a very odd name haunts of the black masseur with the subtitle of swimmer as hero uh, by charles Sprossen. and it's basically the history of swimming. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Apparently the Brits thought they would conquer the world because they could swim. Hmm. And they, they ardently felt they were the best swimmers. Well, it and worked it worked for quite a while. That meant something. Okay. <laughs> they had something. It worked for up quite until about nineteen oh eight. Yeah. And uh, also I I mean I'm not gonna go into detail here, except that it took the Brits a long time to accept an overhand stroke. Oh really? The great swimming was what the frogs did. Mm. They would actually study frogs in Mm. the water Mm. and try to imitate the movements, okay, on land. There are these funny stories about, uh, you know, people learning to swim on land and thinking they could swim even though they had never been in the water. Anyway, um, so Charles Sprossen, that seems like a fun book and I'll tell you, What else I learn? Yeah, it's also not till the 19th century that that they start wearing bathing suits or Uh, bathing costumes. Let's keep it clean, shall we say? Okay. So the final story is this.
2: Wait, I wanted to note one more thing from from that uh, little comic strip, which is it taught me uh, an exciting new insult that I'm looking forward to. I love that insult. If I can find a good situation. Which is uh, in in the Roman insult of saying he neither knows how to read nor how to swim, <laughs> and I right. think uh, that's a great takedown. Exactly. I just need to find the right yeah, moment. Yeah, all right. For
1: well, uh, yeah. Well, we'll keep that in mind. So there was an article that sent us all reeling when we saw the headline on the Thursday-style section of the Times in big, bold letters, The Treasures of Block Island. And we were horrified because we go to Block Island uh, every year. We have for years. And we like to think it's our secret place, or at least a secret place for 20,000 people who head there every summer. Uh, But we don't want it to become even more popular and even more overrun. And this looked like it was like Danger Will Robinson, a problem here. But it turns out to be an article about a particular thing, as the subtitle says. A game of hunting for glass orbs takes on new and magical meaning. Perhaps one of you guys can explain the glass orb thing, because it was a little tough for me. So, what, what are they doing? Well,
0: I gotta say, when I started to read this article, I was pretty uninterested mm-hmm. because who needs another fun little silly game to entice people to Block Island, all right? Mm-hmm. And it turns out there's this um, glass blower, uh, Eben. Horton, over in Wakefield, Rhode Island, and he and his wife uh, have a glass studio, and since 2012, they have been crafting about 500 or so of these glass balls and hiding them on Block Island, Yeah. okay? And people search for them, and there's a Facebook group and so on and so forth, and it couldn't sound less interesting to me. I mean, it's fine for them. Great, you know. It's just, it's just like another one of those, you know, crazy, you too, know, too cute scavenger hunt right, things. Yeah. But the article is lovely. Yeah. The article has really nice stories about uh, people, you know, doing having all kinds of strategies to find the orbs where they're hidden, yeah. watching out for Horton, see if he, you know, they see his boat on the fa- his uh, truck on the ferry, etc. Yeah, well, that's but the, it turns out the orbs—you don't find the orbs; the orbs <laughs> find you. Well, they do say that. They do say that. You know, it's it's funny.
1: Zeke, by the way, I had never heard of this. We've all been to the plot Island. Zeke, you never heard about this thing, did you? No, the orbs have not yeah, found okay, me. So there we go. Uh, but at least you could swim. Well,
0: oh, we, they, 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 we might have seen them, Daniel. We might have seen them. We might have seen <laughs> but them. We weren't aware of this. Oh, you know. Whole thing. And we just said to ourselves, "Oh, that's just some washed-up trash exactly. over there." Yeah. You know, let somebody else. So they give the example of a, the sea glass of a
1: fellow named Bill Holbrook, who in 2017 spent hours devising a divide and conquer strategy, compiling five years' worth of data from the town website building queries to generate with his computer, statistically relevant hiding spots, and creating a heat map of the island, all to find an orb. In 2018, he covered 22 miles in 48 hours with no luck. In 2019, after another unsuccessful day, left him physically and emotionally exhausted, his girlfriend Lisa suggested they head back via stretch of sand near Payne's dock. There, Lisa casually found an orb hidden in an old tire. Holbrook says, I now believe it's more about karma than data. So there you go. The orb has to find you. You have it exactly right. Uh,
0: Well, it's back to the technology. Yeah. Oh, they
1: have all these cute stories about a woman who... uh, No,
0: you don't have to tell us anymore. So they are lovely stories. It's a lovely article. Well, this is the
1: way they (laughs) sum it up. They sum it up with this. I think... uh, this is, I think, uh, Edmund Horton talking. I think people want answers for everything in life now. The thing with the glass floats is there are no answers. You don't find them. They find you. It's all just a magical thing. People want answers. But what people really need is magic. Well, there you go, Zeke. All right. Okay. So that wraps it up. Zeke, thanks for joining us. Um, and uh, You're yes. welcome. <laughs> Appreciate that, Zeke. All Uh, right,
0: this is Samson Granger.
1: Zeke's a reader and a swimmer. And this is Dan Abuhoff.
0: With Samson and Dan read the paper. We'll be back again next week.
1: Goodbye.